0: What's up, everyone, and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and this week we have two stories for you. The first, we talk about one of the major aspects of the upcoming COP26 climate discussions, which look to be one of the most important global meetings on climate change since the Paris Agreement was signed. And then we have a hot take on the new deal inked between Tesla and Hertz. Thanks as always for joining us, stay tuned. If you haven't heard about it yet, there's a meeting of the global minds starting on Halloween, October 31st, called COP26. And it's going to be the most important climate summit the world has held in years. I'll get to why that is, but first, let's do some jargon defining. COP stands for Conference of the Parties. And it is a chance for negotiators representing humanity's governing bodies to come together and review how we are getting on with our efforts to combat climate change. Cops have been happening since 1995. They have steadily gotten bigger and involved more than just negotiators. For example, this year we are speaking at the COP on the important role that private capital has in ushering the world toward a low-carbon future. The ultimate goal of a COP is to emerge at the end of the two-week conference with a plan of action, like what happened in 2015 when members came together to sign the Paris Agreement in an attempt to keep warming below a 2 degree centigrade, but preferably a 1.5 degree centigrade compared to pre-industrial levels. The Paris Agreement basically said the best weapon to achieve this was to dramatically reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. And the best way for countries that sign the agreement to work toward this goal was to submit emissions reduction plans, or in the COP jargon, nationally determined contributions, or NDCs. NDCs are the heart of the Paris Agreement, the reality behind the bluster. But initially, the NDCs that were submitted during COP21 in Paris were what countries thought were feasible at the time, but they resulted in a set of NDCs that would put us well above the warming limit. The negotiators knew this would happen, so they put in a ratcheting mechanism into the agreement at COP21 that every five years, countries must return to the negotiating table with updated commitments to bring emissions in line with the overarching temperature targets that were set in COP21, aka the Paris Agreement. And here is where we get to why COP26 is so important. It's the first official deadline for countries to talk about the ratcheted-up NDCs. Now, a lot of these NDCs have already been disclosed, and for us, It's important to understand them since as NDCs are the heart of Paris, companies are often at the heart of NDCs. The issue with comparing one country's NDCs from another though is countries use a multitude of formats and approaches to calculate their NDCs. So what we did, for you all of course, is we took each country's old and new target and made a map showing how they have changed and how each NDC, new NDC, stacks up to other countries. And by we, I mean my colleague and guest today, Bavir Shah. By the way, if you want to see this map, I will post the link to it in the podcast description. And if you are itching to look before you look at the description itself you could just go to google and type in msci net zero knowledge hub anyway i called up a to walk me through his ndc map and first i asked him to give the context as to why making a map that compares these ndcs country by country was important
1: there are a lot of headline um, numbers in the press at the moment that one country would have committed to a 50% reduction, another would have done a 40% reduction. Um, the exercise that we have done is to try and dig into the actual implied level of emissions in 2030 that each country um, is effectively saying that that they would commit towards. Um, and that requires uh, a pretty extensive data effort, um, because when you read the small print of a lot of these pledges, um, you there are different numbers implied by which reference year you are taking um, as the start of that reduction amount um, or which sectors you are including in that target for instance there's some quite big sectors like land use which may or may not be included in a country's target um, and also the conditionality around um, financial support from from other countries especially for for developing countries Um, so the exercise that we did was to go through each and every single country's NDC and actually quantify A hardcore number of 2030 emissions.
0: In practice, what this allowed us to do was set up this visual summary showing which countries have indeed ratcheted up their NDCs and which have been lacking in the years since Paris. And before we get into what this map is showing us analytically, we first need to address why these pledges are important. The reason being is that often discussions around climate change and climate pledges can seem almost esoteric and impenetrable. Basically, you have powerful people writing hard to understand treaties in order to hopefully save us off from destruction. It can all be kind of maddening. So I asked Bavir before he took us through the results to describe how companies and in effect we, those that make up the
1: workforce of these companies, will be affected by these pledges. If we start off with just a policy risk for companies, um, the thinking is that countries that do have more ambitious commitments to reducing their emissions will at some stage need to change their policy environment to either implement carbon taxes or to design policies that achieve a similar effect. Um, And for countries kind of in those, uh, for companies in those countries, um, that is a challenge that they need to be prepared for. And on the other side as well, you know, for countries that are laggards in in setting ambitious NDCs, if they suddenly do switch to a more um, ambitious climate pledge, um, whether it's under pressure from other countries, um, there's going to be a kind of a sudden or a disorderly change in policy that that companies um, will also be affected by.
0: So let's stick with carbon taxes for a second. If put into place, carbon taxes would likely affect the electricity sector the most first. If your country is operating on cheap coal, for example, and it has an ambitious NDC that it begins to implement using a carbon tax to meet its ambitions, then you would see the coal sector shrink rather dramatically. That could have knock-on effects for a number of sectors, but also the smooth running of an economy if it's not prepared for it one has to only look at the coal shortage in China to see what happens when feedstocks become scarce. Now that shortage isn't due to a carbon tax, but it's a good parallel example of what can happen to an economy's energy system if ambitious targets are put into place that don't actually reflect what's happening on the ground. Also, knowing what a country's NDC says can help you understand where a government might spend its money. So that's another important aspect of this map.
1: It's well known that the public sector tends to invest a lot in renewables and is is a kind of a partner in these um, bigger projects that need um, some kind of quasi-sovereign funding. And... Countries that do actually invest in that technology will will help companies to achieve their own net zero targets, either through wider or cheaper access to to renewables.
0: The availability of renewables can enable companies operating in those regions to achieve their own emissions reduction goals in the most cost-effective manner compared to those companies operating in less ambitious regions. There's also ample evidence that countries which invest in any kind of system that is going to combat climate change will save tenfold in costs that are sure to come later as the planet continues to warm. But there are other factors that should be considered. Infrastructure spending to decarbonize local economies has the potential for job creation, but may also be coupled with inflationary effects on commodity prices or labor market segments company costs. There's also the geopolitical issue. The EU said it is going to ensure it only imports goods that, when possible, are produced in line with its low-carbon ambitions. A company without a local policy to help guide it could be caught off guard by a carbon import tax that raises the price of their product to an infeasible level. One only needs to look at the complications caused by various tariffs already in place to see what can happen when such things occur. Okay, so we've kind of touched on why this will affect companies and people in reality. Now let's go to the country-by-country results that Bavir found in his map.
1: I think we've seen um, a big... improvement in ambition from the US, um, as, as is now well known from, from the Biden pledge, and that's really resonated on um, to countries like Japan, um, perhaps to Canada as well, and even to um, developed countries that are slightly smaller, such as South Korea, where the ambition of their pledges is materially improved compared to what you had before. Um, I think obviously there are still gaps in terms of how exactly we get to net zero, um, but it seems as if the bigger countries are leading the way um, in some aspects. We have seen some laggards in that space. Um, Australia and Switzerland, um, we haven't seen uh, perhaps as big an improvement as as we expected um, in, in their ambition.
0: But what Bevere saw overall was a more aligned, developed market. With the U.S. coming back into the climate agreement and ratcheting up its NDC under the Biden administration, it joined other players like the EU, Canada, Japan the UK, and others, in uniformly updating their NDCs toward a more ambitious commitment. And the developed market is responsible for a large majority of the globe's emissions, so these are encouraging moves. On the emerging market side, however, there's less uniformity, with leaders and laggards becoming more apparent and separating themselves
1: from each other. So Latin America is really interesting because for a lot of countries, uh, we actually see an increase in the ambition of the pledge bar perhaps Brazil and Mexico. Um, And one thing that some countries in Latin America have done is switch the way that their target was expressed um, from a business as usual target to a fixed level of emissions. Um, So in other words, what the countries have done is not just raise the ambition of of what they're committing to, uh, but put a specific number on it that is um, less vulnerable to to ambiguity. Um, And the business as usual targets, Main, very well used um, within emerging markets. We think it's really encouraging that some of these countries have have actually gone away from them and, and committed to a number. So
0: let's move into a more technical aspect for all this for a moment. Country reduction plans Can loosely be put into three camps there are some countries that have set a fixed number for their reduction plans for example south africa has a new fixed emissions reduction pledge to reduce its emissions by 419 megatons of co2 equivalent by 2030. then there are the business as usual reduction plans which set emission targets based on Current emissions and estimates for GDP or population forecasts or trends in energy consumption and emissions. For example, in China's new NDC, they said they would reduce their emissions by 65% by 2030 using a 2005 greenhouse gas emissions intensity level based on their GDP, i.e. they're reducing the amount of carbon emitted per unit of GDP. And then there is the most common type of carbon reduction plan, the baseline plan. The plan that says, we emitted 4 million metric tons of carbon dioxide in 2001, so in 2030 we are going to emit 30% less than that. This is what the U.S. used to set its new NDC to reduce emissions by 50 percent to 52 percent by 2030 from 2005 levels and countries in the eu have set their ndcs to follow a similar strategy using a baseline of 1990 for their emission reduction targets There's a problem with baselines, though. You can kind of choose a year that you want. There's no rule saying you have to choose one year over the other. So you can find a year where you had, let's say, higher emissions than normal. And what you can do is then use that as a way to set a less ambitious plan than it might seem. Actually, one country in Latin America did this that Bavir saw
1: so one interesting example is brazil um, where the actual headline pledge um, to reduce emissions in terms of percentage reduction remained pretty much unchanged at 43 percent from 2005 levels but when you dig into what was actually submitted to the unfccc and the paris agreement uh, one of the things that brazil did was to revise up uh, the historical level of emissions in 2005 uh, which effectively means that the target now is weaker than what it was before because, um, in in some sense, uh, history has been rewritten um, to a high level of emissions. Um, And that's not always visible from the headline pledge. It's not always visible even from um, the, the way the NDC document is presented.
0: And so what this map allows you to do is you can see that and then also
1: compare Brazil with one of its neighbors, let's say Argentina. Argentina um, is a country where um, previously the pledge was to reduce emissions by a certain amount relative to a 2030 hypothetical. Um, and now we actually have a fixed level of emissions that's been committed to by the country, irrespective of um, business as usual conditions such as you know economic growth or population change.
0: There's another piece of this map that we didn't get to, but is as important as the ambitions of a country. government, the sectoral burdens that are included within a country's economy. Countries that might otherwise be economically or geographically similar may differ considerably on their sectoral emissions profile. This suggests the need for different strategies and policies in the years ahead. So to provide a clearer picture of this sectoral challenge that could lie ahead, we have a pop-up bar in that map that Bavir made, which shows each sector's current share of emissions within each country. So I wanted to end this section today with a kind of philosophical discussion of maps, because maps are quite important. They provide an identity to a region and its countries. They allow us to solve problems of the physical world by seeing large expanses in miniature form and being able to show the ambition of climate targets in a map allows us as investors as companies as citizens to understand where risks might lie or where opportunities are being formed. We can kind of be galvanized by that to do either support work or to try to rally those that have the power to change to work toward a future we would like to see. And this is good to know because COP26 will be extremely important for the future of our society and we have to hope that it can provide us with a map that we can all use to go forward and lower our collective emissions. So one way to help countries meet their NDCs is to electrify their transportation systems. And this week, one of the loudest players in the electric vehicle market, Tesla, signed a deal with rental car company Hertz for Tesla to deliver over 100,000 of its cars to Hertz by the end of 2022. The deal was for 4.2 billion U.S. dollars, and it pushed the valuation of Tesla up to around 1 trillion U.S., I don't talk about Tesla much, but I can't resist talking about the company when there's big news like this. So I called up my co-host, Bentley Kaplan, who also covers the transportation sector for us. And
2: I asked him what he thought about the deal. So Hertz, the car rental company, has been through a weird couple of years. You know, last year was COVID-19, so there was a a big, you know, drop in travel. And the company actually filed for bankruptcy in May and just before that, they sort of laid off a furloughed about a quarter of their workforce. So it was really, really tough times. Um, and, and sort of they've, they've managed to, defi- to find their way through that. And then, you know, a few days ago dropped this very big announcement that they're going to order 100,000 Teslas to, you know, to strengthen the electric vehicle offering of their fleet. So, you know, across the world, you've got car rental companies that are slowly trickling in EVs and hybrid electric vehicles but it's not a a core offering. And there's a few reasons for that. But obviously now there's a lot of pressure on on car rental companies to provide some kind of differentiation. So if you're a if you're a traveler who wants a low carbon option, or if you're a business especially is, that's now looking to reduce scope three emissions or something like that, then having electric vehicles available is a big deal. So, you know, Hertz deciding to make this very, very big order from from Tesla signals that it's that it's you know, leapfrogging over a number of competitors that may have been ahead of them. I think
0: this was a big deal for Tesla because they've had questions about whether or not they can actually become a major car player, uh, the likes of which are Ford and Toyota and, and other major manufacturers like that. But in terms of spearheading the electric vehicle market, helping the world decarbonize, is this a bigger deal for Tesla or is this a bigger deal for Hertz?
2: In your opinion. What is interesting is that the there were you know the questions around whether Hertz is doing this as a as a carbon emission saving option. That's their main reason for doing it. Um, and there's a there's a some question marks around that because you know Hertz has not really got any any clear carbon reduction targets out. Um, and you know a lot of our sort of internal modeling shows the company is not aligned with a two-degree warming scenario. Um, but what is interesting is is you know combined with the the electric vehicle offering, the Tesla brings you a new level of convenience. So you you know because of the the automation and because of the connectedness, you are necessarily tethered to a a rental hub. You don't need to go to the airport to get a Tesla. You know if you have the the right kind of app set up on your phone, you can unlock it uh, wherever it happens to be. So that gives you know that gives there's a, a certain level of convenience plus, you know, prestige and the consumer preference for low carbon. So whatever is driving this demand, um, you know, it will result in a reduced carbon carbon footprint for Hertz. But if investors are looking to the company for a, you know, a two degree scenario trajectory, they still have quite a way to go um, to do that. And that's it for the week. I want to thank
0: Bavir and Bentley for discussing this week's news with an ESG twist. I want to thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to tune into COP26. It'll be really interesting to see what the aspects of the negotiations come out to. And I'm definitely going to be watching and we'll be reporting on that next week and probably the weeks to come. Uh, If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate and review us. That always helps. And subscribe if you want to hear my voice every week. Thanks again and talk to you next week.